I'm Christine Horn. I'm a professor of sociology at Washington State University. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good intro. Now that could be, you could work on anything. If somebody asks you, okay, but then what do you actually work on? Then what do you work on? I study social norms. Norms are those informal rules that may not even be articulated that we follow sometimes without knowing it and that are enforced through social relationships, through social sanctions, rewards, and punishments. Okay, you mentioned at the back of that, enforced through social sanctions and punishments. I feel like when people think about social norms, when it gets used in typical small talk, if somebody mentions a social norm, I feel like they're often talking about how it's an oppressive social norm because they're thinking about the stick part of the social norm. So maybe could you talk a little bit about how should we have that negative attitude toward social norms? Is that unfair? So that's interesting. So Freud, remember Freud, talked about social constraints as being really horrible things that made us miserable. Right. Emile Durkheim, sociologist Emile Durkheim, said that we actually need social constraints. Without social constraints, we experience anomie. We have this unextinguishable thirst. We're we're miserable. And so we're more vulnerable to suicide. This is in his famous book on suicide. So Durkheim says, actually, we need constraints. We need constraints to know who we are, where we are, what we're supposed to do, what we can do, what what the options are for us. And so... According to Durkheim, norms are actually really important for for individual well-being. So we probably don't want to see them all negatively, though they can be oppressive. Um, right. They are not necessarily, and constraints can be really important. Can I ask in the in the research you've done, is there an example you could give about how a certain constraint is empowering, energizing, helps people figure out what they should do with their life, helps them not feel adrift? I put you on, like I do you have like the the is there the epit- the ultimate social norm like well in this one culture or at this one period we had this social norm and it was a positive social norm we would all recognize it as positive Well now that you're asking me to come up with a positive one of course I can't <laughs> <laughs> Well then maybe we could co- I want to come into it sideways then can you think of is there a negative one that um I know we literally just said people think of them too negatively is there a particular social norm you've studied or thought about or looked at which is particularly negative and it could be antiquated and gone or still current So I've studied norms related to bride wealth payments in Ghana So in Ghana when a man is marrying a woman he makes a bride wealth payment to the wife's to the woman's family and we argue that what he's doing there and what the literature argues is that he's really buying the right to her sort of the right to, or the authority over reproduction. And so then the, under, when the man has paid bride wealth, the woman's reproductive autonomy is really constrained because the man has basically purchased authority over it. And so that is something that women can experience as um, constraining. <laughs> Yes. Well, they may not be able to control the number of children they have, for example. On the other hand, it it, it may say something positive if a man pays bridewell for her, and it's it, having bridewell paid is a good thing and is what sort of makes a marriage a marriage. Without bridewell, a marriage isn't a marriage. So it's okay. Sort of I think the. 
I think that example you've given could be characterized in in our American culture generally. That is a problematic example because, you know, again, we think um, I would f- the positivity of that bride wealth payment. The fact that it could be positive would be someone's willing to pay a lot for control over my reproductive uh, my reproduction. And uh, while I see that could be a positive, but in in that culture, maybe we could get into the nuances. How does it play out? Is there do the women have how much autonomy do the women have with their family? And then once they get married into a, this other family with their husband, how do they feel about their reproductive autonomy? Do they have any when this money's changing hands sort of over their head? So um, I'm going to s- sort of answer your question, but sort of not. When okay. I was not interested in this when uh, Francis Dodu, who's a professor at Penn State University and also at the university, he was then at the University of Ghana Regional Institute for Population Studies. He gave a talk in my department and he said, in Ghana, um, a man cannot ask his wife about her business, but he can beat her if she puts too much salt in the dinner. And I thought, what? <laughs> that makes no sense to me. There's something going on here culturally that I don't understand. And so what that example does is show that women have autonomy over certain spheres. The man's, the bride wealth payment doesn't give the man authority over her business. If she's running a stall in the market, she gets to control that. He doesn't get to say what it's, what's going to happen there. But in, a, in the domestic realm and the reproductive realm, then she doesn't have as much autonomy. And there's some indication that that may also increase a woman's vulnerability to abuse um, because the man has has some level of authority, right? And the woman yeah. shouldn't go against the man's wishes. So it's complicated. It, it's probably not as, as simple as we want to think about it in America. It's, it's hard to translate. One of the things I realized doing this research was that we really couldn't, we can't translate that into Amer- what makes sense to Americans very easily. We'd have, when we were writing this, our first paper, reviewers would say things like, well, that okay, so that's that's like a ring, right? It's like engagement. And we're like, no, it's not really like that. <laughs> so it's it can be hard to translate. And I would hesitate to say anything too um, authoritative about Ghanaian culture. Um, okay. It is complex. It and would be question. closest to what is not a social norm that is, I feel like, generally not in all places, but has passed away in America, but was very prevalent 100 years ago or maybe less than that, dowries. So when there's money changing hands and it's beyond just regular gifts, now we just have wedding gifts and wedding gifts are up to the bride or groom to do anything they want with. And this dowry was like kind of a promise of responsibility. <clears throat> is there a responsibility? So uh, a husband-to-be hands this money to the to the bride's fam gives the money to the bride's family are there clear responsibilities that come with it i think of in traditional judaism there is um there's a contract that the man has the man and woman sign that oftentimes explains all the things the man is required to do and under failure then you have to divorce the woman so it's it's a legal contract is does that is there anything like that in this uh, that gets beyond the research that I did, so I'm hesitant to, <laughs> to speak to that because I am not an expert in Ghana. I okay. studied moms, but I'm not an expert on Ghanaian culture. I will say that that bride wealth and dowry are bride wealth the man pays um, to the woman's family, and dowry the woman's family pays to the man's family. So they actually have different kinds of consequences. Um, 
what what did your research entail? So who did you need to talk to? Did you need to travel? What did you do to gather your information for it? I went to Ghana and I worked with Francis Dodu and graduate students um, at the University of Ghana Regional Institute for Population Studies. And we brought, we went out into rural areas and we talked to women and we basically gave them a little story, a little vignette about a man and a woman and manipulated in, some people, we told a version where the man had paid bride wealth or he'd paid partial bride wealth or he'd paid no bride wealth. And then um, in the story, the woman did something or, or didn't want to do something the man wanted her to do. And then, then we asked them, how do you think the people in, her, in, that, in your community would react to that? How, how would the man's family react to this? How would the woman's family react to this? How would the man in the village react to this? To get a, a sense of what what the norms, meaning all of the social, the general social reactions in the community would be. And we wanted to know what they expected other people to think, not what they themselves thought. Okay. So not just like, not just asking your personal opinion, but yeah. What do you think your community, how would your community react to this? Yes. So that's the essential to norms that it isn't norms. Aren't really the aggregate of what, everybody's personal opinions or attitudes are norms are collectively held, which means there, there's something in there about what I expect that you support, what I expect that you approve, what, and what we all collectively expect that everybody else um, approves and supports. Okay. So I might be stretching too far afield in what you just said about social norms. I can feel my, if I have like an inner, inner American straw man who sits inside me and reacts to things, I react very poorly to the idea that I am governed by social norms. I feel like in America, publicly, we I feel like we don't we talk about social norms, but we don't talk about them explicitly. They're sort of embedded places. And we are so big about freedom, liberty. Actually, that thing you said where, well, it's not so much about what you think about, but what the community thinks about. And I'm like, pish posh. That's some scarlet letter A stuff. Uh, that's like puritanical nonsense out of the 1600s and 1700s. People don't tell us how we should feel about things. We decide how we should feel about things and how it's us, us. We are the, we're the guide. Can you tell me what the research, when you look at social norms that way, and it sort of bleeds back into sort of liberty, freedom, individual focused Western culture, how does that play out? Well, so we do have reasons for doing things and we're really good at articulating those reasons and those reasons that we believe drive our behavior and um, that make a lot of sense are not necessarily the things that drive our behavior. So we don't necessarily recognize the things that affect our behavior. If you ask people, are you influenced by the number of other people who do something? Everyone would say, well, no, I make my own decisions. I did this because of X, Y, and Z. But if you studied it and you manipulated the number of people who did something you would find that the number of people who do something affects what the individual does, um, regardless of what we think. And I, I think it's that's sort of the message of sociology more broadly is we think, again, we think that we make our own decisions, we have values, we have interests, we are creatures who know what we want. Um, and yet sociology tells us, well, we're also embedded in social structures, we're interdependent beings, and we can't possibly um, there's no way that we act independently without any all any of that other stuff affecting us. It just it just doesn't happen. 
Americans don't want to believe that, but we're an excessively, <laughs> we're a very highly individualistic culture. So we don't see that, but it's there. Um, can I, this might be just an opinion, but from your perspective, where you look at where you do look at the influence of those social norms, do you feel like it's a bad thing that Americans kind of want to live explicitly in their thinking about themselves and the people around them? They want to live in a world where we say we've done away with a lot of these social norms, even though you could come in on the back end and be like, but I can show you how if we pull this lever, we get people to say this, people will kind of might fall in line or they might be angry about this and it doesn't how do you feel about people do you think it's good that they want to be blind to that or do you think there's a help to being blind to social norms and saying i'm the center of the universe and what i feel and think is the most important thing i think we don't want to be on either of the extremes i think americans tend to be towards the individualistic extreme and we would probably be better off as a country if we were not um, Durkheim has this, I'm going to talk about Durkheim again in his book on suicide. Sure. He talks about being in an over-regulated society and then being in an under-regulated society, being in a society where we're way too integrated with each other and in a society where we're very individualistic. In either of those extremes, you get high rates of distress and suicide. So what we want to be, according to Durkheim, where we want to be is somewhere in, in the middle. We don't want to be too individualistic so that we're not tied to the group and tied to any sense of obligation, but we also don't want to be completely tied to the group. We want to, there's, I think that's the other thing we want to do is say, we want to maximize this. We maximize, you know, a good thing, more of a good thing is a good thing. But in some cases we're, it's best to be somewhere in the middle and it's, it's not super clear what the optimal, what the optimum is. So again, I also, that balance, that balance sounds hard. It's so much easier to simply a group mentality. Everything I do is for the group and I don't think about what I want or need there. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is whatever I want, need, whatever my values are, need to be reflected in the world around me and what people think, forget them. I don't need to consider other people. I'm an individual actor in the, I'm a individual actor in the universe. That middle ground is really, really hard. Apparently so for Americans. <laughs> well, yeah. When you think about individual freedom, individual freedom sounds like a good thing. So it makes sense to want more of it because it's a good thing, right? But also community is a good thing. So isn't community a good thing? And and they're opposing good things and or or at least they're not completely congruent good uh, good things. There's some overlap, but there's also some tension between them. And that tension, how we manage that tension has implications for how successful our social life is and how, how, how much people are able to, communities are able to pr produce a community that's desirable to live in. Yes. Right? Uh so you kind of um, social norms were established in Ghana. And I think we talked before about a lot of times when you're studying social norms, you're going in to discover what are the social norms that already existed. And then part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today was you went and looked at a moment in time with COVID and the pandemic where social norms about um, whatever illness, about what shows morality about what what our responsibilities to the community versus ourselves that all had to play out in real time and people did not have rules about it and you could see them flail 
So I am curious, what was the research you did involving COVID social norms? You know, why did you decide to do it? What did the research look like and kind of what came out of it? Well, we thought it would be interesting to look at because this was a new situation, right? Americans had not been experienced a pandemic before. The COVID was completely new. We were getting a lot of contradictory information from the media and from health experts. And you could see sort of the CDC advice and government recommendations shifting and people really trying to figure out what am I supposed to do here? What's the right thing to do? What am, what's the safe thing to do? What's the responsible thing to do? Um, and so we, um, in April, did some work where we looked, we, again, we gave people stories. Imagine you're in this situation where the governor has issued, for example, a stay-home order, which people have by ask- all experienced. When you say April, were you jumping, were you April 2020? Like you were just right. Okay, so you did catch it. The iron was hot. Okay, sorry. Yeah, the yeah. iron was hot, April 2020. And <laughs> state governors had really just been, just um, issued these lockdown orders and stay-at-home orders. And so we wanted to see how people were thinking about, should I stay, should people be staying home? Should they be going to work? Should they be going out and socializing? and trying to understand how people thought about that. So there's a a really well-tested theory about norms that says that people, um, that norms emerge in response to behavior that causes harm for others. And so if that, if that is, is happening, then when an individual is doing, is engaging in behaviors that create costs for others, other people should disapprove of that behavior. And so we did a, test of that. And yes, I mean, there's been lots of tests of that, but yes, that absolutely happens. COVID's a little bit different because going out and socializing and runs the risk of spreading the disease, but it was not super clear to people, you know, what exactly are the risks? This is all so new. So we wanted to see, we expected that people would disapprove of and expect other people to disapprove of going out and socializing and partying because that just seems irresponsible we thought that they would be less negative about going to work, but still going to work also runs the risk of spreading the disease and that people would be, that norms would be most supportive of staying at home. And so what we found is that Republicans, and we looked at this by political party, Republicans and Democrats both agreed that going out and socializing was not a good thing. Okay. Democrats thought that um, going to work at a non-essential business was uh not a good thing. Republicans thought it was a much better thing. <laughs> and then both Republicans and Democrats thought that staying at home was a good thing. So there was really a difference in how Republicans and Democrats thought about work and weighed kind of what's the cost to the community of somebody going to work and spreading, potentially spreading germs versus the cost to the individual of not being able to make a living. And Democrats and Republicans weighed that differently. So you can see that there there's some sort of, maybe not conscious, but some sort of weighing of individual well-being and the collective good going on in that calculus of, is it okay to go to party? Is it okay to go to work? Is it okay to stay home? Okay. I have to initially, so right. I mean, obviously we'd gone through, people have talked about political divisiveness in this country. Did you know going in, in February, March, April, when you're designing this and like, oh, we want to do this right now. Did you know we're going to parse it along Democrat and Republican Republican, or did that unfold in looking at the numbers as you took the information back? Um, We, we didn't know how it would, because it, it wasn't, 
the divisions weren't exactly the same then as they they became greater over time. So we measured political orientation because we wanted to be able to look at that, but we, it wasn't clear to us how big those differences would be. Um, we, we did find difference that that difference. Um, we also found that, well, I was going to say Democrats are more judgy than liberals. <laughs> Democrats tended to see people as people who violated norms as more um, unintelligent and self-interested and immoral than Republicans did in that. And they, they tended to be more disapproving. When they were disapproving, they were somewhat more disapproving than Republicans. Um, we also looked at masking and whether it was okay to wear a mask or go to the store, go to the store without a mask on, go to the store with like a bandana, because remember we couldn't get masks back then, or going right. to the store with an N95 mask when we were all being told not to use one because we had to preserve them for healthcare workers. So we looked at that too. And we wanted to see we wanted to see what are the expectations about disapproval and also what are the reasons you were asking about reasons or we were talking about reasons. People have reasons for why they do things. And so when they, they disapprove of somebody not wearing a mask to the grocery store, they have a reason and their, their reason has to do with that person's being stupid. And that person is not, is, is being self-interested because they're, they're not caring about how they might affect other people. So those two rationales, um, not being very intelligent and um, uh, not being, being selfish being and selfish um, are these two themes that we see a lot in all in the, the public discourse about what well, should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? And should you all of that that was happening back then? So you didn't want to say it, but I thought it was interesting. And I saw this too, because I have, I feel like I traffic along the right and left spectrum and I have people who are wildly right. I talk to and you just nod your head a lot. And then people who are wildly left and it's nod my head a lot. Okay. I understand you feel that way. I feel very strongly that, that angry judginess early on from people who were on the left or the Democrats about, again, in their mind, it was, are you so stupid? So it's anti-science. You're stupid and you won't listen to scientists who tell you there's a disease out there and you need to take care of it. So you are dumb. The person who will not wear a mask and will not, you know, uh, quarantine, you're dumb. And then the, the other side about, it was weird, the communal about you have a responsibility to the community. We are doing this as a community. And it was so interesting to me because people who feel very strongly about individual liberty and freedom would deploy so they individual liberty and freedom but it when this when the issue this issue about what should we do about this pandemic that would flip and it would all be communal we have communal responsibility and then i'm like wow that's crazy because that's normally a big banging drum for the the religious right and stuff about saying we have a culture and a society we need to preserve and we need to hold on to these rules and it was just interesting to see people deploying freedom or communal responsibility and just seeing them flip so quickly on both sides. <laughs> I think it did. I think it moved towards conservatives focusing more on freedom and seeing government mandates as sort of overreach um, and a threat. So we did start to see, uh, we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So I think conservatives were um, perhaps Perhaps their focus on individual freedom uh, explains 
why they had lower levels of disapproval in general than Democrats did. Yeah. Okay. And that, um, you, and again, you'd see, so I poisoned my well in my brain by watching a lot of social media. And we all saw the stories about people freaking out, um, on people, both, um, people were anti-mask and pro-mask freaking out at the other people in public and having these really, and it rem- it was interesting. So social norm wise, having public outbursts like that, where people are freaking out about what at another time would be a very small thing, but now has become really emotional and they need to lash out and they, that person needs to be shamed. Like, was there anything in the research? How did shame play into that and that need to like, we need to judge these people and tell these people they're wrong. So that's a form of social sanctioning. Um, and so we, I think you saw that people did think that, for example, people who didn't wear a mask in a grocery store should be sanctioned. They, they deserve to be sanctioned. There was also some rhetoric about how we shouldn't shame people. The shame doesn't work. Which is, So I, the norms literature, I think, has not really sort of disentangled the, the kinds of sanctioning that are effective or ineffective. We just sort of say sanctioning, sanctioning, but sanctioning that shames is probably, there's reason to think that that's not particularly helpful. Sanctioning that disapproves of the behavior, but is otherwise respecting of the individual is probably more effective. But that's in, you see that in other literature, not so much in the norms literature, which just says sanction, sanction, sanction. Um, okay. So what we what we see is that there we have uh, sub norm subgroup norms, and people sanctioning people in the other group who are following a different norm than they are, and that is uh, creates it enhances intergroup conflict. It exacerbates intergroup conflict and sort of makes things worse in our highly divided society. So whether you wear a mask or not has become a marker or, or you know, became a marker of who you were and um, what group you belong to. Um, not so much now because nobody's wearing masks anymore, but, but for that, there was that period where um, you could tell who was who. <laughs> and probably now you can tell who's who by who got the vaccine or not. Um, right. Uh, if you knew that. And I do... Th- that mask thing, because it became a physical, again, it was interesting because I, I would go back to my high school English class about reading the Scarlet Letter about forcing people or, again, things that have been deployed to mark people, clothing you're required to wear because of who you are or what's wrong with you or the decisions you've made or whatever's happened to you, clothing you have to wear. So that mask, you'd see places and places where the cases were really low where the one um, conservative or the one liberal shop owner would make a point of saying no masks in my shop or on the opposite side where everyone else isn't wearing masks, we still wear masks in our shop. And it really like I want is that was it just you probably maybe you can't answer this question, but maybe there was something in this research asking people how they felt about this stuff, what their justifications were. Is it the is it the. um the joy or the togetherness, the feeling of community where I know my community and we make these decisions about the mask and that makes me feel better to join with my community? Is it the joy of being angry and lashing out at the people who are doing the bad thing? Is it trying to be responsible? Did you get any feel for what the emotional payoff was for people who were leaning hard on either direction when maybe they didn't need to, but they clearly wanted to be identified as part of that group? Yeah, so one of the things that I didn't say was the 
there's an argument about norms that says that people pay attention to the consequences. If the consequences are harmful, we tend to think the behavior is bad. So when we realized that secondhand smoke was damaging to other people, then we started norms emerged against smoking. But, and this is really relevant for the COVID case, we don't necessarily know what the consequences are. The consequences of, are not necessarily clear. And so when the consequences are not clear, or even if they are clear sometimes, I mean, how do we know? How do we know what the consequences are? We're bombarded by so much information. How would we know? Well, the way that we know is we look to other people and we think, what do, what do other people who I trust, people who are like me or people who are high status, people like me, people who are in my group, what do they think? And if they approve of it, then it must be good. And if they disapprove, then it must be bad. And so that that muddies everything. And, we, and the reason we do that is because we everybody wants social approval. Everybody wants to belong. And, and so what the people in our group are doing really matters to us. And that may be something that we're not totally conscious of. We don't say, oh, I'm going to everybody in my social group thinks that mass wearing masks is stupid. And so I, I therefore think they don't say that they have a reason for why they think masks are stupid, but, but it's part of the social dynamic of belonging to a group. Um, does, is there anything that spilled out of the research where were there any, did you, were you trying to learn something clear or are you really kind of exploring? Here's a weird thing happening. We're just going to grab the stuff and see what we find. Or are you looking for a particular thing? I had a hypothesis, a clear hypothesis, <laughs> and I came out of it either justified or destroyed the hypothesis. We did have hypotheses based on the existing literature on norms. And so we did test those hypotheses. And we also, in some instances, weren't really sure what, what we would find. So we did... We did some things to try to figure out what kind of reasons people were giving for why they would, why they thought, you know, why they would disapprove of this behavior and not this behavior. Um, and that was a little bit exploratory because there's some research suggesting that there's these two kinds of rationales that people give, one which is about sort of these practical considerations, is this a smart decision to make, and one that's about sort of morality and self-interest and taking care of other people. We expected there to be something in those two dimensions, but... Um, but that was more exploratory. And we think there are probably other kinds of reasons that people give that we, we weren't able, we weren't able to get at. As in you could feel maybe their answers back were like a little vague and you're like, ah, we wish I'd ask, like, did you, was it one of those things where you've asked all the questions, you get it back and you're like, oh, I wish I could have asked five more follow-up questions. For those people. <laughs> we did actually interview some people, um, oh. which gave us a chance to, um, explore things a little bit more and people were, you could feel that people were really trying to, they were trying to work through it, you know, like, and they were trying to figure out, okay, so in this case, you know, I, I was wearing, we were isolating, but then I decided for my kids' mental health that we had to do this. And then, and I think that was okay because of this, you know, people were really trying to figure out what's the right thing, what's the safe thing. And so you could see people talk about it. And when they were talking about their own decisions, they tended to see them as really reasoned and like they had a good reason for the decisions that they made. But when they were looking at other people's behavior, they tended to default more to, I don't understand why that person is behaving that way. They must be selfish or stupid, right? Um, whereas in their own, when thinking about their own um, behavior, if they did something 
that you know wasn't safe. They had a good reason for doing something that wasn't safe, right? So, so people were using those kinds of rationales that I've described for their own behavior, being but being a little bit less willing to recognize that other people might be making really thoughtful calculations, and and being a little bit more judgy of other people than they were of themselves. I mean, and you'd also see people do things like like a woman who said in her job, she had to go to people's homes and she was going to somebody's house and that person wasn't wearing a mask. And she said, to hell with that, I'm not going to wear a mask. And she didn't because she was doing what she thought that other person would be comfortable with. And and so you saw people feeling the pressure of other people's expectations and sort of navigating, well, do I do what this person expects? You know, how how do I navigate this? What we saw and what we're what we saw throughout, I think, is this real burden on people to have to navigate, try to figure out figure out how, how am I supposed to behave in this situation and how do I navigate other people's expectations and my own sense of what's right or wrong or safe or unsafe. So it, that kind of constant navigation and negotiation is kind of exhausting for people. I, I suspect we do this a lot I, I mean, I know I can feel myself thinking through all the things you've talked about, the rationales people have given and the kind of values that were at play when they decided to wear a mask or not wear a mask or go to a place or not wear a place. I remember thinking that same thing and then settling into uh, it was weird. I could feel it slide into my whatever the virtue like, oh, I have a value or a virtue here is how effective is this vaccine I don't, they don't even know, but like, you know, you're supposed to do it for the group. So if like, you know what, this feels a little like wartime where, you know what, you do something. And if, if you have negative consequences to yourself, it kind of doesn't matter. You're doing it for the group, for the herd health. So even if something bad happens to me, well, we should all still do it because we're, we're working with the herd here. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe people financially thought about that. If there were conservatives who were like, I'm going to go to businesses, even if I'm uncomfortable, but I want to make sure those businesses are open and we want to fight to keep those businesses open. So maybe they were thinking communally. Um, so in, in the answers people gave, were people focused on, I heard a lot of people focused on their own health. And I think people who had a tendency to be nervous about illness or health, this was very traumatizing and triggering. And I know people who still wear a mask everywhere, even though they're not at risk and no one else is wearing a mask, but they are really agitated about these germs around um individual choices this is for me how many people said they were making group choices this is bad for me or might be bad for me or my family but it's good for the group so i have to do it for the group that did come up so so this woman who didn't want to wear a mask around another person it would have she realized that yeah technically it would be safer to wear a mask but it would make this other person it, it would disrupt the relationship with the other person. So she was clearly thinking about her relationships. And then people thought, as you were saying, thought about businesses. It's important to me to support local businesses because they need to, you have people who need to support their families. And so I'm going to support that business. Um, And people got creative about ways to do that, right? All those restaurant takeouts and, you know, (laughs) all that stuff. Um, yeah, comedy shows and parking lots and stuff. They yeah, were, like a yeah, graduation, drive-through graduations. <laughs> <laughs> I did one of those with my kid. Yeah, drive-through. Yeah, I did okay. too. I did too. Yeah. Um, that brings me to. I'm curious in the in the research you did, were you able to capture anything about children? Because I think I'm most worried about 
adults are one thing. They're going to, they, they're, we're, we navigate these issues all the time. Even if we don't think about it, having to choose between me or other people every day, every, almost like every decision when you're out in public, you're making some decision about whether you're doing something for you or for another person. Do kids, do you think, is there any, what, what, what do we know about social norms when they affect kids? And do kids, do they have just as nuanced, um, an ability to sort through this stuff or do they get pulled yanked hard by the group or the, those figures of authority? I don't know. What I, what I heard was a lot of parents concern. What's good for my kids. And people have different opinions about what's good for my kid. Like my kid really needs the social interaction. My kid really needs to be in face-to-face school. My kid really needs to be safe from COVID. You know, there are these competing things um, so I heard more about parents' concern for their kids than, and I and I don't have a sense of where kids are at. I think um, when kids are living in a household with a vulnerable family member, that's a tricky situation. I think that then they do have a tricky situation because they both recognize that they have a vulnerable family member, and they recognize that none of their peers are wearing masks now. Um, yeah. So I think. I imagine that there's some stress for kids um, and for kids who bring home illness to the family. And, um, but I have not studied that. Uh, and I know, yeah, it's all anecdotal on me. I haven't seen a right. lot of people looking at it. Yeah. There, as you said, there's a lot of worry about what happens when kids don't socialize. There's a lot of worry about the socialization, but all the messages kids are getting about, how they're supposed to navigate their own needs against the group. And like, yeah, that's, but I, I guess I'm just, kids have to navigate this stuff all the time. These kids before COVID who had vulnerable family members in their houses have the vulnerable, vulnerable family members. If they're still alive, still in their houses, they've already been navigating this stuff. So I guess it's not that crazy. Yeah. But COVID made a new, because of, because of the unknown risk of COVID and what appeared to be the, the substantial, and then what was the substantial risk of death earlier on when we didn't have vaccines and people were dying at higher rates, um, it, it felt scarier, I think. Um, but, but I don't know. I, I, have, I haven't studied kids. I, I don't know where they're at. I think you're right that kids are, navi- they are used to navigating complex situations because they their their worlds are very complex and the social media makes their lives very complex and they have to navigate a lot of stuff all the time um but what that looks like i don't i don't know is there so what happens to the research was the research like did you like it enough with the people you worked with you're like we want to publish it what and is there any follow-up you're like i think we'd want to do a follow-up to see if anything's changed we did publish a couple papers out of it so yes where a couple papers and um, we thought about doing a follow up, and then you know we were all also ourselves dealing with COVID and kids and work and all the things at the university that were happening and all the adjustments and all the you know shifting everything online. So um, we got slowed down a bit as well. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything overall when you do your work? A lot of the research obviously winds up in academia and it winds up in the classroom. So you're teaching kids who are either they have to take a class or they're really interested in the topic. And so it's interesting to them. Is there anything you hope in general looking at social norms, 
Like if you could go out there, if if you could be like the, you know, the the dictator of social norms, you'd be like, I would like to make these adjustments or I would like everybody to study this because then they'd be better informed. Is there anything you'd like to tell people? I wish I could do this. This is the way I wish the study of social norms could really help people. Um, I guess a version of that question is what do I wish that people understood about social norms? Oh, and, that's good. <laughs> um, I think going back to our the very beginning of the conversation, I wish people, I think I wish that people understood the value of social constraints and the, um, that maximum freedom is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, but also that norms are, norms are complex. There was a little boomlet of, uh, research in among legal scholars on norms and a lot of uh, positive the, the sense a lot of optimism about norms that norms could provide an alternative to law that might be useful in maintaining social order um, and then I think we saw a little boomlet of dismay during the Trump years that norms of democracy seem to be being undermined pretty easily by one person's um, violation, persistent violation of them. So norms, norms are a strange thing in that they can be very persistent and they can persist for centuries. So if you think about norms of foot binding, those norms persisted for centuries and centuries and, and stood up against all these efforts to eradicate it. And then when it did disappear, it disappeared in a single generation. So norms, <laughs> norms can be so persistent and yet also so fragile. Um, uh, that's not a okay. very nice, neat and tidy answer. <laughs> no, well, the, the struggle with, I think you present this, this dilemma we're, we're all wrestle with all the time, which is some of these social norms people talk about as um, oppressive, that we want them to be gone. I want this social norm gone. But I think very seldom do people at least slow down enough to ask, why is that social norm there? Do we want it gone? What are, what might the effects be if we made it gone? What is all everything that social norm does? Even though we don't like everything it does, I it's hard to wrestle with these things because the ones we don't like, we want them to be gone. And it, as you've given the example, they could be gone in a generation. And the other ones we want to stick around, they it, they're just as ephemeral. They could come and go. It's just cultural stuff. We just decide not to do something and everybody in a generation decides not to do it. We just don't do it anymore. Well, except that's not totally true if you think about oh. it, about gender, for example. So lots of people think that gender inequality is a bad thing and we don't want to do it anymore. And yet, look, here we have gender inequality or racial inequality. Lots of people think we shouldn't have racial inequality. And yet, so there are these persistent problems that just because we want to change them, we want to change them, but we don't seem to be able to be effective in changing them. And that's because, I think, partly because outcomes are not just due to a bunch of individual action. They take coordination and cooperation among groups of people. And when that, and that is a harder thing to make happen. Everybody individually deciding, let's get rid of inequality. It, it will probably not work unless this something social changes as well. Right. So then would you, are you on the, are you on the side? Uh, so perceiving these social norms that are that you're regarding as problematic, troublesome, negative, bad, 
and they just don't go away. Everybody talks about them and talks about them, and yet they don't go away. Does it make you optimistic that eventually they will go away? Or in studying social norms, you're also like, some of these social norms, they stick around and they just never go away. Things that are related to status hierarchies and inequality are pretty persistent. Ooh. Right? And you see in the the research, some things are easy to switch, and the ones where people's... um, where they would perceive their livelihood or their place in their society shifting, people will hold on to those for longer. Well, it's it may not even be that they hold on to them. It's that they expect that other people hold on to them. I worked for a law firm once, and there was a, there was a female lawyer who a client didn't want to work with. He didn't want to work with her. He wanted a male attorney. And the managing partner said, tough, you, this is the attorney you have to work with. But... <laughs> but we may, ex- if, if, as much as we might want equality, if we believe that other people don't, then it's very difficult to achieve. <laughs> if we think that other people don't want it. Right. Because we, we behave in ways that we think other people will accept. So it was that managing partner made a tough decision. He knew the partner didn't want to work with this woman. He knew the he knew that the client didn't want to work with this woman. He knew the client wanted to work with a male colleague, and it would have been easy to say, "Okay, I'm just going to do what my clients want." I'm just because I have to do that. I'm running a business. I have to do what my clients want. And they want to work with a man, so I'm going to give them a man. I mean, he could have done that. It's hard to not do that. Um, do you? So maybe this this may be too large a question, but I think um, looking at ancient history all the way to today, this fight between pragmatism before there was pragmatism and idealism, hoping that the fundamental parts of a society could shift, that these things that people take for granted, they can shift. And we see history shifting them and other times history not shifting them. We see sort of we've progressed and then we deprogress. Do you think, are you, would you describe yourself as utopian and that you think a time of true equality could exist or you're like, ah, it's really just a fight along the spectrum forever. Sometimes I think that the domain of inequality just shifts. There's some, there's a sociologist who um, I'm thinking about his work where and he basically argues that the larger the number of people, the more inequality you have. And so inequality is inevitable. Um, I'm, I know there are people who, who believe that society is moving in a positive direction, that we're on this upward trajectory in the arc of goodness, you know, the arc of justice, whatever, whatever the thing is that we want to have happen, that we're moving in that direction. And then another way to look at it is, well, we're just changing what the problems are. There are there's always problems. We just change what they look like. Um, and I don't know. 